so we continue our sermon series on the book of Acts, and so we talked a little bit about last week um, about, um, and I, I just thought it would be great to be able to look at the early church's story and look at the key biblical, some of the key biblical characters that we find in that story, and once again, looking at their story and how it connects with me, your, our lives together, and also the future of the church. And, and, and so we started with the, uh, the Apostle Peter last week, and we talked about the word potential, um, this week we're going to talk about Philip. Now, this Philip that we find in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, this is what I'm preaching on today, um, is not the same, not to be confused with the, uh, the apostle Philip. The, the one of the original 12s. This is, um, um, this is Philip they called the Philip the Evangelist. And so we, what we know about Philip the Evangelist is we know that he um, evidently was a part of the early church. We know that the early Christian, the early uh, fathers of the church actually sent uh, Philip. He evidently was very compassionate. He had kind of made a name for himself in the church, early part of the church in Jerusalem. He was actually dispatched to be able to go to Samaria, which to be able to share the good news to the Samaritans, which not would not have been a very easy gig. It'd been very difficult. Matter of fact, because the Samaritans and the Jewish people didn't, they hated each other. They had a long history, a long track record, about a thousand years of some, this bitterness has been built up. So they actually send uh, Philip to actually go to Samaria. Um, we also know that um, Philip um, actually has an encounter with a couple of people there. He does great things. He's knocking the ball out of the park. He's um, converting people. They're amazed. Um, he's sharing the good news. They're repenting. They're being baptized. We have that remarkable story. He has an encounter with a guy, and I'm going to talk a bit more about this in just a minute, about, from a guy named Simon the Great Magician and how he converted him. We're going to learn. And the, also, we find that he actually has this conversion experience with a eunuch from Ethiopia. We find that part of the story. After he leaves the Ethiopian eunuch, he actually ends up going back to a place called Caesarea Maritime. And we know that was a big Roman uh, city, uh, actually city. Uh, we know Herod the Great had a beautiful palace there, been there many times. And then we also know that he had four daughters, and um, the four daughters had been given the gift of prophecy. We also know the Apostle Paul actually had actually visited Philip at one point. So um, we know that particular Philip is a Philip the evangelist is a little different from the uh, the other Philip that we find in the original twelve disciples. So just to kind of clarify that, uh, I'm going to read to you all the story today, and um, um, this is the story. Um, and then we have I'm going to teach on the story before the story, but I want to share with you all. You're probably wondering why do I have this big ugly orange thing up here, right? This. And I'm going to call this a barrier. So the first word, I've got three key words, and this is, goes along with my message today. The first word is the word barrier. And the second word is, or the second two words is sacred worth. So the first word is, key participation part of the sermon is, the first word is barrier. And the second two words are sacred worth. Okay, and I have this other visual aid up here. And I have, what I have up here is a bowl and it's got water in it. And it reminds me of the Holy Baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we find in the story today in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts today. And we are gonna talk a bit about barriers and about the Christian story and how Jesus came and the early apostles came to actually break down beers through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's the story today, and this comes to the eighth chapter. Um, so let me begin with this. So then an angel of the Lord uh, said to Philip, hey, get up, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Well, this is a wilderness road. So he got up and went, and now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, um, a court official of the 
of Candace, who's the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, hey, get up, go over there to the chariot and join in. So Philip ran up to it and um, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he replied, well, how in the world can I know unless someone kind of guides me? So he invited Philip to get in the chariot beside him. Now the passage of the scriptures that he was actually reading at that moment was this from the book of Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before his shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Then the eunuch asked Philip, hey, about whom may I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip began to speak and starting with the scriptures, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, hey, look there, there's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So you, most of you all know, um, I really love American history. And so I was like a kid in the candy shop this last Memorial Day weekend because the History Network always puts out some kind of new documentary, usually around Memorial Day. So this last Memorial Day, they did one on FDR. So uh, listen, I've watched them all. So they started out with a documentary about George Washington. They, started, they did another one on Abraham Lincoln. They did one on, um, on uh, Teddy Roosevelt. They did one on Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, and so this year they did something on FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it was just an amazing, I learned so much. I just love history and I'm learning about that part in that era in American history. And, and so when I was listening to that kind of documentary, I realized that once again, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was up against a lot of these barriers. Matter of fact, in 1933, he gave his um, inaugural address and um, the country was actually falling apart. Um, it was um, after the great stock market crash, the economy was in terrible shape and, and here just a huge mess. And so he did something that was really, really smart. He started, the first thing he did was he actually asked people who were a lot more smarter than him about economy and about, the, about what to do. And so he got, gathered all this information and the first thing that Franklin Delano did, um, and he only been in office for a week, he closed all the banks. Can you imagine that? Let's just shut down the banks. But he was genius in this. He didn't say, oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end. The America economy is in terrible uh, place. He says, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to call it a bank holiday. Great idea. So let's give the banks a holiday for a week. So he gave all the banks all across America a holiday. One week, they completely shut down all the banks in America. 
And then the amazing thing, he figured out to be able to configure, I guess he got Congress to approve and all the banks that were able, actually strong enough to reopen, they backed them with the, um, with the with their government, said that they would back the banks that were strong enough to be able to reopen. And the ones that were weak enough, well, they were just part of collateral damage. They didn't reopen. But the ones that were strong enough, they reopened. Now, before they opened on that Monday morning, after they took that bank holiday, FDR did something brilliant. He's only been in office for a week. He did something really, really smart. He started something called the Fireside Chats. And he got on the radio. This is 1933. And this is what he had to say. And this is, I mean, there was a lot riding on this. And what was riding on this is because he knew if the banks reopened and everybody began to continue to take all their money out of the banks, then the whole economy was completely going to collapse. But he knew if they were able to actually put their money back in the banks, then that once again, we would be on this road to recovery from the economy, economic standpoint. So he gets on the radio that night and he makes a plea to the American people and basically says, I need your help. In order for us to be able to turn this around, this is what I need for you to do. And this is what he had to say. And by the way, you ready for this? There are 60 million people listening to FDR that night. That's a lot of people. Matter of fact, they said there were so many people, their streets were literally empty because they're all around a radio listening to what he had to say that night before they opened the banks on that, first, on that Monday morning. He says, I can assure you that it is safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than keeping your money under a mattress. So the people the next day did something amazing. They showed up at the banks and they were lined up around the corners at the banks in 1933. And many of them had bags of money and they put their money back in the bank rather than taking the money out of the bank. FDR's first barrier that he had overcome. Then he had to take on this other thing in American history. I don't know if you remember this, but World War II. We're talking about fighting a one war in Europe and fighting another one in the Philippines and over the, uh, or Japan. It was an amazing feat. And so when, um, when the uh, Japanese Pearl, uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, um, all of a sudden FDR had to figure this out, right? So they figured out they had to be able to get into uh, to Europe and they had to, they, this plan called D-Day. And this was amazing. So D-Day was put into motion. And you know what FDR does? He gets on the radio again. And this night when he gets on the radio and he does... It's an amazing thing. Once again, it's great leadership. All he did on his fireside chat that night, the night after we began to invade Europe at D-Day, he led America in a prayer. Wow. Guess how many people were listening that night? A hundred million Americans were listening to our president that night. And what did FDR do? He prayed for our country. And he asked everybody in America to pray for our country. Wow. Barriers. Overcoming them. Haven't we all overcome some kind of barriers in our life? Obstacles, things that are hindrance, barricades. And over and over again, I've, been in, I've, I've seen it. You've experienced it. We all have experienced some kind of barriers in our life. And, and so, I, you know, once again, I, I thought about this this last week. And I thought about, okay, this is think about racial barriers. My first experience about that, I, it came back when I was about, um, let's see, I was in seventh grade. True story. 
So I didn't, when I went to elementary school, there weren't very many black, I don't, I don't remember there's any black kids in my school, I'll be honest with you. I was at Conway, my dad was a pastor at Conway United Methodist Church in Orlando, which was kind of a suburb of downtown, and I don't remember we had any black kids. And then um, what was interesting, so then we moved to Mandarin in Jacksonville, and so I had to be bused. Actually, we went to a seventh grade center. It was bused from Mandarin, which was a suburb of, of Jacksonville, and so we were bused downtown to a predominantly black community. And all of a sudden, there were black kids everywhere. So that was okay. I, I, was, I got used to that. They got used to me. I got used to them. We all just kind of, it was all just kind of, it was a new experience for me, okay, because I never had experienced that before. Matter of fact, I don't remember anybody in our church worth being was African-American. I don't remember that either. So then all of a sudden, I remember one day I was on the bus and I remember my butt, now he wasn't a good friend. I mean, he was a friend, but he was what I would call a bus friend. And so this kid was sitting next to me and all of a sudden he takes on our bus driver and our bus driver happened to be black. And this is what he says to him, my buddy. He says, hey, you're colored. And the bus driver says, I'm not colored, I'm black. And the kid would not relent. He says, no, you're not, you're colored. And the bus driver snapped back at him. As I'm watching this whole thing unfold, he says, I am not colored, I am a black man. And when I heard that, there was a sense of pride and dignity of sacred worth in his own language. I am not a colored man. I am a black man. And so the first time in my life, and witnessing that on the school bus that night, that day, I realized two things. First of all, if I would have had I thought about it, I should have told my buddy to shut up but I didn't. But, and then the other part of that was I didn't see my black bus driver as a colored man. I didn't see my black bus driver as a black man. I saw my bus driver as a person of sacred worth. Barriers. I don't know if you realize this, but in 1956, something happened big in the United Methodist Church. A, a woman by the name of Maud Jensen, she broke down a barrier. She became the first woman to become ordained in the United Methodist Church. That was a barrier. I remember my friend Nelson calls me up. Um, my, my friend Nelson, God bless him, he and I have been friends since 1981. I met him the first night that I moved into the dormitory at Florida Southern College, and he's been one of my best friends ever since. He was the best man at my wedding. He calls me up about, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. He says, Harold, I, I got bad news. And I said, what's going on now? And he said, um, my dad was murdered today. And um, in Temple Terrace, Florida, some kids broke into to his house, he was unloading some things out of his car and they just happened to see him. It was just like the wrong place at the wrong time. Kids went by, um, teenagers, they held him up at gunpoint, said give us your money and I guess Rick evidently didn't wanna give him the money, they had words. The next thing this 17 year old girl dropped him right there in his house, killed him on the spot. They caught him. I mean, they, I don't know, they stole 20, 30 bucks out of his wallet Stole his, maybe his debit card or his visa. Went and spot some Nike tennis shoes. And threw away their whole lives in that moment. 
So what was interesting about that, I went to Nelson a few years ago and I asked him this question. I said, Nelson, let me ask you something. Have you been able to forgive her? And Nelson said to me, you ready? He said, I have forgiven her. I just haven't forgotten. Barriers. Because for somehow, Nelson, my best friend, has been able to muster up some kind of way to look at this person that actually murdered his father in his own house and still sees her of some sense as a Christian of sacred worth. Wow. Bears. I read this story a few years ago. I think I read it in the Max Lucado book. And um, I actually researched it this last week and, and you can look it up. Um, there's some kids from the, I think it's called Gainesville State School and uh, I think it's called Graperville or um, Texas. And, and so um, the kids in the state school, well, they're in a penitentiary. They did something wrong, but they actually allowed them to have a football team. So the, the, at faith, the Faith Christian School, which is evidently down the road, put them on the schedule and decided that they were gonna play them in a football game. And so the coach came up with this idea from the Christian school. He says, this is what we're gonna do when we play them that night. They divided up all their fans that would come and cheer on their team. And he says, we're gonna give half of our fans to our team and half of the fans are gonna go and root for these other kids because they wouldn't have anybody in the stands. And then they said, they we're gonna also gonna figure out what, na what name goes with what number. And so they had certain members of their fan club to memorize certain kids' names and numbers in order to root for them and call them by name. So they played the game. And what was very interesting, at the very end of the game, the Christian coach said, hey, would anybody like to close us out in prayer? And one kid raised his head, hand, and he was one of the kids who was a convicted kid in prison in this school. He says, Coach, I'd I like to pray. And this is what Gerald said. Lord, I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thank you. But I never would have known there were so many people in the world that cared about us. barriers. All of a sudden, what was interesting about the dynamics is that normally never would have happened, but somehow the coach of the faith Christian school saw all those kids that were on the opposing team in this state penitentiary, well, they had some sense of sacred worth. Breaking down barriers. So the story today, Philip share with you all a little bit about Philip's background. So Philip um, had gone to Samaria, but you have to understand the story before the story. So before Philip even gets there, there's another person that shows up in Samaria. His name is Jesus. You know that guy. And, and he shows up of all places at a well, Jacob's well. You know that well. And there's a woman there and we know her. We don't know her name, but we know her as the woman at the well. 
Okay, so then she goes in the middle of the day. You all know, you heard probably a hundred sermons in that because it's, it's the middle of the day, it's hot. And, and none of the other women would go in the middle of the day, but this woman goes because she's, well, she's ostracized. She's, she's an outsider. She's an outcast. So she doesn't want to be around the other women because she wouldn't be accepted. She'd be ridiculed. So she shows up in the middle of the day. Jesus shows up at the well. And this is what Jesus says. And he has the audacity because see, here's the deal. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And Jesus turns to the woman at the well and says, hey, woman, give me a drink. And the woman says, you all know the story. Why do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? I mean, after all, we've hated each other for a, about a thousand years. What's up with that? Now, by the way, don't miss the detail. You ready? The detail is, is that the Samaritans and the Jews, so if you were Orthodox Jews, Jew, you would never actually go around the Samaritan, but like, like it was a taboo to even actually touch like the bedlinen, or it was a taboo to even use a utensil that a Samaritan had used, or actually their spit was even considered unclean. And yet, what minute, you ready? Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink out of her cup. Breaking down bears. So then that story unfolds, and you've heard me preach on this. So all of a sudden, Jesus says something to him about her husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. Then Jesus says, that's the wrong answer. Ah. You got five husbands, and the guy you're shacked up with ain't your husband. Ah. Right? That's in the Bible. Ah. I'm just making that up. And so then she says, well, how do you know this? Are you a prophet? Hmm. So Jesus continues this conversation at breaking down beers. And by the end of the conversation, she says, she, he goes from being a Jew to a prophet, are you the Messiah? Messiah. All that in that dialogue. So then she goes and tells all her friends or all the people in the city about Jesus being the Messiah. There she comes to the evangelist. So that's the backstory. So guess what? She lays the foundation and the groundwork for Philip to go to Samaria. Do you get that? The woman of the well that Jesus has converted, who ultimately Jesus, you ready? Sees her of sacred worth. Philip goes, he's commissioned to go to Samaria. He begins to preach. Good things happen. Wonderful things happen. I mean, he is hitting the ball out of the park. People are being converted. They're being repenting. They're, they're being baptized. And one of the persons there, if we find it in the gospel, in the book of Acts, he encounters this, this guy who, we, let's just call, his name is Simon. And he's known as Simon. He's great. In other words, the people actually thought he was like a, a guy who was actually connected to God. Because, but yet there was deception because he was really a magician. Trickery. Deception. And yet what's interesting, Simon the Great, magician, as Philip continues to convert people, he begins to follow him around like a puppy dog. He can't get enough of Philip. And he can't get enough of the gospel of what Philip has presented to all these people because he sees there's something to it that Philip has that he doesn't have. And he too, evidently, according to scripture, that he gets converted as well. Now, what happens back home in Jerusalem, all of a sudden, the upper, upper beginnings of the early church 
they brought in the big guys, Peter and John, and they went to Samir to see what was going on because Philip was stirring things up. And they went there and they realized that there was something missing in all this conversion. And what was missing is that they were being baptized and people repenting, but there was something about the Holy Spirit that was not involved in all that. So Peter and John are witnessing all this and they're, all of a sudden they begin to lay hands on people and when they laid hands on people, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit got a hold of the people. Amazing. And then we know that Simon the great magician goes to Peter and says, hey man, and he pulls out a wad of cash and says, hey, can I buy some of that Holy Spirit? And Peter says, are you out of your mind? I bet Peter's head was about to explode. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. Put your money back. How dare that you would even have the audacity. And matter of fact, God might strike you down dead right this minute because even to go there. So you better put your money back and don't even bring that up ever, ever again. It's in the Bible. Now, what's that story all about? It's a story about a guy who ultimately has this conversion experience that has somehow had this, the gift of the Holy Spirit had to go in and actually reveal God's spirit and all of a sudden it changed people's lives. Even the magician who's a Samaritan. Wow. Philip leaves. And on his way, he's leaving and going down the road towards Gaza. And he sees this chariot come in the room. And he sees this guy who is stopped. And evidently, the Holy Spirit says to Philip, get up, get up, go over there. Go talk to him. What am I going to say? Go, go, go talk to him. So he goes and starts this conversation from this, from, uh, with this Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, don't miss the detail, has actually gone to Jerusalem in order to actually learn more about God. And guess what happened when he got there? Probably he was rejected because eunuchs were not allowed to go into the temple. They would not have been accepted. Can you imagine uh, flying? (laughs) Can you imagine actually making the traverse all the way 2,000 years ago? You get to the temple and then all of a sudden the doors are closed on you. Go home. We don't accept your type. So he leaves. He's going back home to Ethiopia. And Philip begins to strike up this conversation. And the Ethiopian eunuch, who's been rejected because he's got this barrier that's been set up, he says, hey, well, what are you reading? He says, well, I, I'm reading this scripture. He says, but I don't have anybody to tell me what it means. And then Philip begins to interpret, and it just to- happens, he's reading from the book of Isaiah, about the sacrificial lamb. And, and Philip begins to help him connect the dots between the prophecy that we have in the Old Testament and how that points to Jesus. Wow. So they're trekking along the road and all of a sudden the eunuch who has been rejected turns to Philip and says, hey man, I see some water down there. What's to stop me to be baptized? And Philip says, 
Nothing. So Philip baptizes him in the water. By the way, Philip and the eunuch couldn't be any more different. I mean, uh, Philip, uh, he's a lighter complexion. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's dark. He's from Africa. Uh, Philip didn't have two nickels rubbed together. Yet the eunuch is, he's very wealthy. Matter of fact, he's in charge of the, the, the queen's estate. And then Philip is married and evidently he's got a, four daughters. And the eunuch is a eunuch. He couldn't be any more different. And yet Philip, oh yeah, don't miss the detail. Philip doesn't turn to the eunuch and say, hey man, we don't accept your type. He baptizes him. Right there on the spot. Wow. Okay, hold, hold on. This is really, really important. This is really, really important. The Ethiopian eunuch becomes the first non-Jewish convert of the Christian faith. Let that sink in for a second. The Ethiopian eunuch, this African dude, who's a eunuch, becomes the first non-Jewish person to be converted to Christianity. Wow. Because Philip didn't say, we don't accept your type. Hmm. What's this story all about? It's about beers, but also it's about Philip seeing the eunuch as someone who's got sacred worth. It's about Philip seeing this great Simon magician as someone who's sacred worth. It's about Jesus seeing the woman at the well with some sense of sacred worth. But yes, and let me tell you something, all three of those stories, and they're all right there together. There are barriers everywhere. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to move barriers. I can tell you that. You know what I love about that is that, you know, Jesus never said, um, we don't accept your type. Jesus was always about saying, I accept all types. And the woman of the well is an example of that. And by the way, I don't know if you realize this, but let me share with you all. They've hated each other. The Jews and the Samaritans have hated each other for about a thousand years. And yet Jesus has the audacity and the boldness to turn to the woman at the well and says, hey, can I have a drink? I'll be one to drink after you. Wow. That's amazing to me. Breaking down barriers and seeing people for their sacred worth. That's what this sermon's about today. So I'll close with this story. Um, I, I love this story. I, once again, I found it. And I actually looked this up. I, I think I originally read this story um, in one of Lakato's books. It's called, it's a guy named Buckner Fanning. Buckner Fanning was a, a GI. Um, he was um, actually on patrol um, in, um, after the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. About three weeks later. So the city's in ruins. And he's on patrol as an American soldier, and he sees a sign, right, that he recognizes the English. Methodist Church. The Methodists were in Japan. 
So then he makes a mental note and he goes back evidently next Sunday. And sure enough, there were about 15 people in this rundown shell of a building that's been blown out by the atomic bomb. They're all Japanese and they're putting the chairs back together in order to have worship. And he walks in, this American soldier. And he said, you know what? I, do, I didn't know any words in the Japanese language except one. And he recognized it, brother. They called him brother. So the brother, who was this American soldier, three weeks after the Americans bomb, had an atomic bomb drop on that city, he walks in and the Japanese Methodists invited him to come into worship, gave him a chair. He said he didn't know and didn't recognize anything that was said in the worship service because it was all in Japanese. But he did recognize this. At the end of service, they offered him communion. See, communion is the universal language. Communion is that universal language that says, listen, you are of sacred worth because Jesus is willing to die. And by the way, they put him in a tomb. And what do they put in front of the tomb? Come on, participation part of the sermon. A stone. And that stone was a barrier. But the beautiful thing is, the barrier couldn't hold Jesus. Jesus came to break down the barriers in order for us to understand we're all children of God and we're all of sacred 